to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And although our attention will largely be on the, the second half of this text, I, I want to read the whole. Um, this is God's word, and I am somewhat overwhelmed in, in, in preaching it today. Just um, the the glory therein. Hear the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit seed, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there is evening and there is morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. You are the God who speaks. You've spoken in your Son. And you have sent your spirit, the spirit of your son, that we might know spiritual things and spiritual words, that we might be spiritual, rich in your presence and life. Do this as you promise through preaching. We ask in your son. We're continuing to look at Genesis 1. Last week we looked at the event, what happened, what God did. This week we are considering the result, the product. What kind of world did God speak into existence? Next week we'll turn to the point of creation, the goal or purpose. Now we examine what is fundamental to the world? Where do you live? Apart from developments or plans, what are you dealing with 
day in and day out. As we saw last week, you are dealing with a God who loves his creation. He delights in it. It holds his attention. The results of God's creation work reveal his character. True, he has given a greater revelation of himself, his own son, the man Jesus. Jesus is not an illustration or a symbolic projection. He's not merely a conduit or emissary. Together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he is the true and living God. As you heard from Colossians 1, quote, by him all things were created, and quote, in him all things hold together. The glory of the incarnation is not that Jesus has some generic divine status or some unique divine relationship. The unfathomable wonder is simply articulated. The man Jesus is the God working in Genesis 1. You live in the world which Jesus has crafted. You are called to communion with the powerful word that delighted to make stars and snails. Now there is dispute at this point. Some name Jesus and claim Jesus while at odds with his work in Genesis 1. When people advocate for homosexuality in the name of Jesus, they sever him from Genesis chapter 1. When people have the temerity to claim Jesus' blessing on industrial abortion, they speak of a God other than the one who speaks and delights in Genesis 1. When people profess faith in Christ but have little to no interest in the remaking of their own lives here and now, their Jesus seems little like the God of Genesis 1. God spoke. What was the result? The true and living God created order and life. He built structures and patterns. He determined how things work. He established reliable frameworks and he filled them with living creatures of myriad kinds that thrive and multiply and sleep and cavort. Jesus came as a savior a champion for that order and life. His delight became his passion. Last week we examined the historical frankness of Genesis 1. Even when people acknowledge that this is not poetry, they often insist it cannot be what it looks like. Now this view occurred early in the history of the church, in the second century. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo is a notable example. Without denying the obvious appearance of historical narrative in Genesis 1, he taught that God did not actually create the seven successive days. Why? Because God is perfect. Creating in steps is unworthy of his divine glory. No, as God should, he created all in a single moment. 
But he gave Moses a different story to allow human contemplation on the low material plane. In short, Augustine held to the views of the intellectual elite of his day. Philosophy, descending from Plato, trumped Genesis 1. Now look, Augustine is a good reminder. You should quickly dismiss someone because they have an errant view of Genesis 1. Not all errors are disastrous. Now, Platonism is not the elite opinion of our day. Our elite revere materialism and naturalism. The world is a cause and effect chain, and that chain runs back into the past billions of years without breaks or interruptions. Whatever Genesis 1 says, all order and life are the product of random variation upon random variation. Seven days or 7,000 years and job done, that's just crazy talk. Evolution is settled science. Everyone knows that. Well, every glossy nature documentary knows that. In the world of academic scientific inquiry, there are some curious experts that are unsettled. Now, Galileo is legendary for his conflict with religious authority, but his scandal was challenging the intellectual consensus for at least a thousand years. The elite said the stars and planet and sun orbited the earth just like the moon. They had a thousand years, not just of repeating things, but of data, careful observations of these objects moving in the skies. And it wasn't just theory. People employed the most elementary parts of that data to navigate across great distances. You know, even if the Copernican Revolution hadn't happened, even if John F. Kennedy thought that the planet Earth was the only fixed point in the universe, he still would have succeeded in putting a man on the moon. Not every error is disastrous. And whatever error holds together the data of contemporary evolutionary science, the controversy about 24-hour days and unnumbered epics stretching back, that is not the issue. Seven days of divine power and billions of years are hard to bring together in one coherent thought. But time is not the crucial issue. The issue is chaos and death. The true and living God created a world of order and life. Evolution is a cause and effect chain of chaos and death. God created the sky and the sea and the dry land, and he filled those habitats with living creatures that thrived and multiplied. He appointed the complex regularity of the stars, the silent, vast shifting of constellations. Every society's calendar, every farmer's planting and reaping, every fisherman's seasonal weeks of exhausting work, every crafty man 
planning to harvest migratory fowl. The seeds and the fish and the birds themselves, all that living activity waxes and wanes in keeping with the time marked out in the sky. The true and living God created order and life. God created structures and patterns, places and times, reliable and repeating and recognizable. First, the earth was formless and empty, and he spoke to shape it and fill it with life. Those very living creatures, too, are given an order and pattern. Plants grow and produce their own proper, peculiar foliage and fruit. If you find a blackberry bush this summer, you'll rightly go looking for it next summer. When you choose a breeding pair of sheep for a year, you know that lambs will be the offspring. And you choose your breeding stock carefully. Of course there is variation, even changes in dogs or horses or various insects. There are also limits. You can pair a horse and a donkey. The offspring are typically stronger than horses and more compliant or intelligent than donkeys, but that's a mule. And mules are sterile. They can't reproduce. The true and living God created order and life in this world. Now Moses wrote for a society largely built around animal husbandry, with promises, experience, but also promises of abundant agriculture in the promised land. Moses' language of kinds does not match the refined categories you learned in seventh grade science of genius and species, but it, it identifies the regularity and diversity that confronts us in the richness of living things. And that regularity and diversity are only the structure for what your seventh grade science teacher couldn't explain. Thriving and multiplying abundance. Life sprung up. Going on with spark and flame. No, there's no fire. What is that? Walk out and see. All the swarming creatures of the water and the creeping things of the dry land, the huge swimmers of the ocean, the, the lar large wild animals, the livestock that, that people domesticate. God covered the world, embroidered the world with plants and animals, and they multiply and multiply. There's an energy of flowering and growing tall and spreading out, a series after series of begetting and calving and grazing and cavorting. The account of evolution treats order and life as pure happenstance. Just the way the ball of cause and effect bounces. Yes, there are patterns, but they are just repetitions that seem significant when you look on the scale of things of days or years or centuries. In reality, all the apparent order is just moments 
in the flux of randomness. The sea was not made for dolphins or octopi or innumerable swarming sardines and countless schools. The sky was not made for falcons or dragonflies or bats. Yes, that external order is beneficial for the very species, but there is no beneficence. There is no blessing on them. Stuff just happens. In that universe, there is no delight about a band of Mustangs galloping across open country at 30 miles an hour for no reason except their own wild desire. Humans find it delightful to watch. But that is just another specific bit of random cause and effect that tells you something about the evolutionary state of humans, but nothing about the world or Mustangs. The order is only apparent, and the life is just matter and electricity and the present phase of chaos tumbling forward in time. Now, the evolutionary model is also merged by some with theism, even with a real, robust, biblical faith in the God who created order and life. You must. Remember, Augustine of Hippo's insistence that God really created in a moment, not like Moses wrote it. Not all errors are disastrous. And it'd be foolish to dismiss these thinkers as useless. Remember, JFK could still have gotten to the moon. Still, all evolutionary models of life on Earth present a drastic contradiction in Genesis 1. God created life in its teeming abundance, in its orderly, predictable, productive kinds. There is no mention of death. And most certainly there is no fundamental role for death in the progress and enrichment of the living creatures, of the display, of the grandeur of God's world. The single best known phrase of the evolutionary model is survival of the fittest. The entire progress from simple cell to several cell to mustangs roaring across the plains is a series of deaths. The various every kind of Genesis 1 come from the discarding of generation after generation that did not survive. One particular genetic line is successful and the less adapted lines disappear in death. Statistically, it seems that more kinds are ill-adapted, not worth remembrance. They perish rather than thrive. Be fruitful and multiply is God's word to the sea creatures. Hear that? The suddenness, completeness, and fertility of plants and animals. Days three, five, and six are bursting with life. The, the basic tenor. Refuses the evolutionary account of a rare mutation passed in a few surviving lines of heredity. But the problem is more profound. Death cannot be domesticated. Some cite apex predators, lions, tigers, 
Don't their swiftness and strength and sharp teeth demonstrate that they are divinely designed killers? A tiger can run as fast as a Mustang. Apparently, it pleases God to make animals fast with no thought of predation. Why do they run from one patch of grass to another? Well, the best observation is they seem to enjoy it. A tiger. A tiger can run as fast as a Mustang. A, a silverback gorilla is of comparable physical strength to a lion. It even has the long fang-like incisors similar to the tiger's. Gorillas are not carnivores. They are not predators. It is true they eat grubs and insects. And it is true that in a zoo... If they're reduced to a meat diet, they will eat it. They are terrifying. And they are not predators. Impressive appearance and intimidating power do not mark a divinely designed predator. Perhaps it's more like the peacock's fancy plumage. Death cannot be domesticated. God does not look on death and call it good. Now, animal death is not the horror of human death. It, it does not lead to the judgment of God's throne. An animal's death does not have the cliff-like terror that comes with your intuition of eternity. Still, the terror of being torn apart alive, this is grotesque. The apologist Francis Schaeffer, right in the 80s, he wrote of the difference between a gazelle taking down the hunt and a dog. Passing in his sleep, curled up in the front of the fireplace at his master's feet. Now Schaeffer was attempting to show the limits within which one might consider some evolutionary component to God's creation work. What could it be like before the fall? The problem remains. Death is an enemy. Death cannot be domesticated. The true and living God created a world of order and life. Death is not a natural part of life. It was not domesticated. It cannot be domesticated. Death must be defeated. The true and living God created a world of order and life. And this is where you live. Reliable, repeating, enriching. This is the world you live in. It's not a hope or a possibility or edge on a scheme. It is true all the way down. Yes, the fall has brought infutility, and sins cause real harm, real cause and effect painful consequences. But still God's order remains and gives you a habitat in which you can thrive, fertile, abundant, flowery, and laughing. You live in a world of life. It is not a barren de desert. It is not a place where everything is booby-trapped. 
There is more than enough for you. And there is real joy in it. Psalm 145, verse 9 says, God's mercy is over all that he has made. The world is true all the way down. And the world is love all the way up. This is the God who calls you to himself. And Jesus is this God, the true and living God. His Father sent him to rescue the world which he created, the world in which he delights. Immediately and intimately, this is the end of guilt and shame for you. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He died the death you deserve. He died and defeated death. He rose again. And the entire universe is being restored, radiating out from his resurrected royal person. God's gift of order and life are yours now. He calls you to grow in wisdom, to understand how the world works, to receive it thankfully as a gift. He calls you to live in wisdom, to use this gift to glorify and enjoy Him. Futility and scarcity are not your limits. He sends into your life the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who hovered over the earth when it was formless and empty, the Spirit of wisdom. What work will He do, do with you? The true and living God created a world of order and life. He has sent His Son, and the Son has poured out His Spirit in order that you may glorify and enjoy Him now and forever. Please pray with me. Father, we live in such an abundant an informed, able age. Oh, Lord, protect us from the foolishness of that, the arrogance that is easy. Cause us to know you, your power and affection, your justice and love. Let us rejoice and thrive in your Son. And Lord, use us to bring your glory, your order in life to people in chaos and death. We ask in your Son's name. Amen.